Um, welcome everybody to the second of our Centro Labor Market Regulation webinars. Those of you who were here last week, we had a very interesting presentation by um, Lord John Hendy on the um, status of workers bill. And he mentioned that our speaker today, Nicola um, Contouris, um, was, was one of the, um, helped with the drafting of that. And Nicola is, is very much more than that. He's currently the um, director of the research department at the European Trade Union Institute in Brussels and uh, professor in labor law at um, the University of College of London. He's written extensively and uh, you know one of his major works, which many of you will know, is, is the work on the legal construction of personal work relations, which he uh, co-authored with Mark Friedland, who was his PW, uh, PhD supervisor. So with those brief comments, it's over to you, Nicola, um, to, to make your presentation. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you very much for, uh, for inviting me. Uh, for colleagues, it's uh, it's a pleasure to be uh, amongst you, and uh, I was uh, really excited and thrilled to receive this invitation and uh, the suggestion to present on the concept of worker uh, in in Europe in a comparative perspective, but also from an EU point of view. And uh, this is uh, perhaps something that if you, I should say by way of introduction. There's uh, a small comparative element in what I will be saying uh, in the next uh, 30 minutes or so, but there's also a, a supranational element uh, to the extent that the uh, legal systems that I will be referring to uh, by way of example uh, are also part, uh, or at least as far as the UK is concerned, until recently were part of the European Union. Uh, the European Union, as I'm sure you all know, is uh, um, it's an international organization, a treaty-based uh, regional international organization um, that covers now 27 member states and that has, it has some regulatory competences in the domain of uh, social and labor regulation. And in particular, as far as we are concerned uh, today, it has regulatory competences that allow to produce directives uh, that is to say, uh, legal instruments that are addressed to member states that set minimum standards and that need to be implemented as a minimum uh, by member states. And of course, member states are allowed to go beyond those minimum standards set in their directives. Um, now, uh, having said this, having clarified this point about the fact that when I use the word European, sometimes I mean uh, comparative European, sometimes I will be referring to EU instruments, sometimes I may be referring to Council of Europe instruments, but I, I will try to be clear about the concept of European, uh, the term European I'm using in each instance. Uh, I'll share with you some uh, uh, slides that uh, for today. Can I ask you, can you see them? Yes. Yes, excellent. Okay. So the structure of my presentation has, uh, well, three main parts and then a conclusion. I will start by uh, providing a short 
context, uh, both a historical context and a more contemporary context to frame the debate that we've been having in Europe for some time uh, in terms of the personal scope of labor legislation and the definition of uh, worker contract of employment and so on and so forth. Then I will uh, briefly try to illustrate four national approaches as they are emerging in respect of this particular debate in the UK, Italy, Spain and France, in particular by reference to some of the more recent developments um, that I will clarify in part one of the presentation. And then in part three, I'll move to the more uh, supranational approaches that I think emerge quite vividly from uh, uh, some decisions of the European Committee of uh, uh, Social Rights, which is the body that is in charge of the interpretation of the European Social Charter. Um, but also, and perhaps most importantly, from a draft directive, uh, which was presented in December last year, and is now going through the le legislative pipeline of the European Union, that seeks to regulate um, platform work. I, I will also mention briefly another EU initiative, um, which is an initiative that oddly doesn't stem from uh, uh, the Directorate General of uh, Employment at the European Commission, let's say the equivalent of uh, a Ministry of Labour for a, a national executive, uh, but stems from uh, uh, the Directorate General that is competent for competition law. Um, and I think it will become uh, apparent why, I think it might be very clear already uh, to a South African audience, why on occasion uh, competition authorities seem to take an interest uh, in uh, collective agreements, in particular collective agreements concluded uh, by or on behalf of self-employed workers. I think there's some interesting developments emerging in that corner. I should say that these two uh, latter initiatives, the Platform Work Directive and this draft guidelines were uh, presented by the European Commission on the same day, early in December 2021, uh, and the Commission itself sees them as intimately connected. Okay, so uh, the context of <clears throat> the ongoing uh, debate. Now, um, inevitably, when we talk about the personal scope of application of labour laws in uh, 2022, we um, invariably uh, end up talking about platform work, but uh, I'm sure you know this because um, to a certain extent similar debates have taken place in South Africa. Uh, this is a long-standing debate, a long-standing question, which is linked to um, the true perceived uh, crisis of uh, the contract of employment model, the, the concept of subordination uh, or subordinate work in continental European systems, and the parallel emergence of non-standard work, atypical work. So to a certain extent, this is a debate that is almost four decades long for some uh, countries in Europe, uh, slightly more recent for uh, other countries, but it's certainly not a debate that uh, came up in the last uh, five or 10 years. However, uh, uh, the various attempts that uh, 
member states, uh, European countries, uh, made to address the historical problem. And uh, you can find um, three examples of uh, legislative attempts in, in the UK in the late 1990s, in, in Spain in 2007, in, in Italy in 2015 and 2016, have contributed to creating um, a sort of variety of approaches in EU member states um, in respect of how to address uh, the crisis of the contract of employment, how to extend rights beyond the contract of employment. Um, so, um, to give you an example, and this may all be uh, uh, trite knowledge, so I'll uh, just go through it quite quickly, especially because I suspect you will have benefited from uh, uh, the presentation of uh, John Henley on the topic, and he's the authority. In uh, 1998, uh, the Labour, new Labour government, uh, um, presided by Prime Minister Blair, introduced uh, uh, legislation such as the National Minimum Wage Act that established a sort of intermediate concept of worker between the idea of worker with a contract of employment and self-employed person, um, often referred to as the LIMB worker, to which some rights were attributed, but not all labor law rights. So for instance, national minimum wage, working time regulations were attributed to these um, uh, intermediate categories of workers that um, according to uh, the House of Lords Supreme Court in the United Kingdom are a subcategory of self-employed uh, persons that bear some uh, traits of employees with a contract of employment. Um, another approach is uh, um, the approach pursued uh, almost a decade later in, in Spain in 2007, where there was a parallel attempt to give both more rights to the generally self-employed, okay, but not all rights, and to increase substantially uh, the rights of an intermediate category that in the Spanish case was conceived by reference uh, to the idea of economic dependence. So if uh, at least 75% of your income was coming from uh, you know, a limited number of uh, clients, uh, then you fell under this uh, definition of uh, uh, self-employed but economically dependent worker. And you attracted a substantial number of rights that was almost equivalent to um, the, the rights uh, that employees with a contract of employment had. Um, and then the third approach is perhaps the one of the Italian Jobs Act in 2015-2016. It's perhaps more accurate to refer to the Italian Jobs Act as the Italia, Italian Jobs Acts because there was a succession of legislative decrees between 2014 and 2016 um, that sought to intervene in, uh, in this debate in various ways. Initially, the approach was, um, let's introduce a single contract, uh, whereby we reduce all the typical forms and non-standard forms of contracts and create a single contractual form, which is a form uh, of um, 
standard contract of employment, but for the fact that to begin with, that contract does not receive protections in the domain of uh, unfair dismissal legislation. Um, and this, this was the initial attempt of um, a government uh, uh, in 2014, um, a centrist government to resolve the matter, except it clashed with the constitutional court's vision that uh, uh, precluding uh, unfair dismissal protection to uh, uh, such a group of work, a large group of workers as they were going to be, uh, was anti-constitutional. And then successive reiterations of these job acts tried and explored alternative routes to deal with uh, uh, the complexity and reduce the complexity and to a certain extent also give more rights. Uh, so for instance, they created uh, uh, a sort of intermediate category of workers and Italy has a long-standing tradition of exploring this tertium genus, this intermediate category of workers between employment and self-employment uh, by reference to the idea of uh, personal work and also hetero-organization. That is to say, not quite control on the part of the employer because if uh, you provide personal work and you're under the control of your employer, then you're a subordinate worker in Italian law. Uh, under Italian law, but uh, the idea of heterogenization is that somebody else uh, in effect organizes, perhaps bureaucratically, perhaps indirectly, the way in which a work is provided. And this bunch of heterogenized personal workers were granted the same uh, status uh, and the same protections of uh, employees with a contract of employment while not being employ employees with a contract of employment by uh, uh, way of lacking proper subordination. So uh, this, you know, there were several attempts to deal with the complexity that was already emerging in the analog world, uh, the pre-digital <laughs> uh, world, and they led to somewhat different approaches, I think one approach was to give more rights to the self-employed or certain categories of the self-employed. They had completely mixed results, I think. In Spain, it never took off. Uh, employers never concluded, um, you know, this kind of contracts with workers and they would rather either treat them as employees or self-employed. In the United Kingdom, I think it's, it was extremely problematic and dubious uh, in terms of the long-term implications of uh, the Limby worker definition uh, uh, introduced with the National Minimum Wage Act and the working time regulations uh, the following year, because it, it, it actually contributed to um, adding to the existing complexity that the system already had and just provided an additional opportunity for employers to confuse judges, to confuse workers. Um, and I think the Italian Jobs Act, um, I think in spite of the fact that it was embedded into a system that already had since the 1970s sort of intermediate category of work, also generated some additional complexity. And instead of, I think this is already a complex problem. And as far as I'm concerned, um, regulatory experiments that tend to add to this complexity are rarely 
successful. And um, I think the whole debate was starting to run out of steam. Um, there was almost sort of um, acceptance that this was an intractable problem, uh, that this is just how um, legal systems, you know, we revert to the pattern in you know, to try and deal with these questions, but they're almost intractable. Um, no, no not very many new ideas uh, coming from Parliament. Uh, scholars were doing their own thing in the meantime, but it's fair to say that the debate was losing steam. There were fewer and fewer people interested, even in academia, with this um, vexed question. And then something happens uh, about a decade ago, and more markedly in the fa last five or six years, there is this emergence of um, on-demand, and in particular, on-demand work mediated through digital platforms um, uh, in the United Kingdom. Within a matter of months, we went from an obsession with the regulation of zero hours contracts to uh, uh, an obsession with uh, uh, the plight of uh, uh, platform gig workers, which in effect are zero hours contract uh, workers employed through a digital intermediary. Uh, and this really revived the debate. Uh, it revived uh, the interest within the union movement. And uh, uh, in fact, we had a wave uh, and almost seemingly coordinated, to a certain extent it was a coordinated, uh, uh, internationally coordinated wave of strategic litigation um, pushed by unions, uh, old unions, new unions, um, they had some significant successes uh, before most of the European judiciaries that I know of, and even beyond uh, uh, the, the European region, where in effect uh, workers, gig workers, platform workers, especially in uh, 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 urban transport sectors, uh, food delivery uh, sectors, who had been classified by their contractual arrangements with the platforms as self-employed were claiming successfully that they were not self-employed and they were instead other employees with a contract of employment or quasi-subordinate workers, you know, LIMBY workers, um, with a certain uh, amount of success. It was a very successful, I think, uh, strategic litigation campaign, uh, but um, Increasingly, I think it became quite clear that uh, these gains in the court did not necessarily translate into gains in the labor market, gains in terms of, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, a universalistic solution, even just for those sectors that were litigated, even just for those companies that were losing the cases, because uh, they were always free to change uh, an a, 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 a section, an article, a provision in the contractual arrangements and uh, workers would go back to square one or say, okay, the two workers that challenged the contract may have won, but the others are in. And there were all these strategies developed by platform employers in order to, um, you know, have their cake and eat it. So they would lose in a court, but would still be able to retain the same contractual uh, arrangements that they've had until then with the rest of the workforce. 
And what is noticeable here is that in spite of these great wins before the courts, parliaments and governments were very reluctant to intervene, even in those sectors in which it was now quite established that uh, these workers had been misclassified by their platform employers as self-employed contractors. In respect of, I think, this second, the slightly more uh, digital uh, generation of the debate around the personal scope of application of uh, labor law that mainly emerged in the context of uh, the litigation surrounding the platform economy in the last five, six, seven years, depending on uh, the member states. I'll uh, quickly summarize um, the outcomes of uh, uh, these processes uh, for the United Kingdom, Italy, Spain, and France. So uh, in the United Kingdom, by and large, um, as in the other member states, um, uh, platform uh, workers, gig workers, the unions that represented them were victorious in, uh, in the courts. Um, the paramount example here is the Supreme Court decision in, in the Uber case where uh, the, the claimants were recognized as being limby workers attracting some protections in particular the protections that they were hoping for um, uh, working time paid holidays minimum wages uh, in some other cases there was less success um, platforms some platforms were quite astute in uh, developing some countermeasures as soon as the first Uber decisions were pronounced by the employment tribunals, uh, by the employment appeal tribunal, and tweak the contracts by introducing, for instance, substitution clauses, that is to say, contractual clauses that uh, allowed uh, a platform worker to appoint a substitute uh, if, for instance, they were unable to work or they didn't want to work, depending on uh, the type of clause. And um, um, courts up to the Court of Appeals, so some senior courts, uh, accepting these uh, clauses as genuine, as opposed to sham uh, arrangements, uh, contractual arrangements, and also seeing them as an indication uh, that A, the work that was provided was not required to be provided in a personal capacity, and B, that this power to substitute amounted in effect to some um, a manifestation of almost an, an entrepreneurial activity. You know, I, I will uh, uh, defer the provision of the work that I've been tasked to another party as if that party were my employee substitutes, uh, you know, some subcontractor uh, in, in a way that it denied both employee and worker status. But by and large, most of the cases have reproduced the Uber. Uh, pattern. Um, we've had some collective agreements. Um, I, I won't get uh, into the detail of that, but uh, should you want to need to comment on that, I'll, I'll happily do so later. Um, but very few compared to other member states. And a, 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 a government that has completely abdicated its responsibilities to regulate in spite of successive uh, promises to um, engage with ACU. Um, uh, you you uh, might have uh, 
had the chance to read about the Queen's speech yesterday uh, in uh, the House of Parliament. And again, the uh, long-standing promise to deliver an employment bill, partly to do with these matters, uh, was not fulfilled. Um, one exception is, uh, I think, the effort that you heard about last week uh, from, from John, a bill that has a very broad personal scope of application that would include uh, um, many, if not all, of the platform work provisions. In Italy, we've also had victory in the courts, including in the Supreme Court. Um, here, there wasn't a recognition in the, the top cases, but in some other cases, there was also recognition of full employment status. Here, we had a, a situation where uh, workers were considered to be hetero-organized workers, but with all the rights that apply to uh, their uh, employees because of the Jobs Act of, of 2016. We've also had a law that uh, seeks to facilitate uh, the conclusion of collective agreements for uh, self-employed uh, 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 workers uh, working through platforms, as long as they provide continuous and predominantly personal work. Uh, um, and, and I think partly because of this law, though there were earlier collective agreements as well, in Italy, collective bargaining uh, in the sector of, in particular, um, platform workers in the delivery industry, uh, uh, urban transport, food delivery, is thriving. We have uh, no less than 19 collective agreements. Uh, but again, no comprehensive intervention on the part of parliament or government other than the, the law of 2019. Spain, uh, Spain and France, I would say full victory in the courts. Uh, uh, you know, uh, workers being considered full employees with a, a subordinate contract of employment. Um, in Spain, we, there's been a law uh, introduced by uh, the uh, uh, government, the current socialist government and its uh, ministry, Minister of Labour, uh, that seeks to regulate specifically um, couriers uh, working through platforms and has introduced a legal presumption of employment for these uh, platform workers in this sector. Uh, but there isn't a comprehensive legislation either. So platform workers beyond the sector or industry are not covered. Um, and some collective agreements uh, are taking place in, in, in France, no collective agreements, no legislation, a recent attempt by legislation to uh, uh, encourage uh, collective agreements, but still no examples. So, I'm um, going to sum it up, uh, but by and large, uh, victory in courts, um, albeit with slightly different uh, outcomes, depending partly on the legal tradition of uh, each system, no comprehensive legislation, a best sectoral legislation, some collective agreement, some interest on the part of uh, 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 trade unions, especially if prompted by um, state state legislation. Moving to the European um, approach, I think let me just speak for a minute about uh, a, a decision by the Committee of Social Rights 
um, of the European Social Charter uh, in respect of um, um, a case brought there by the Irish trade unions uh, in 2016 that were representing uh, orchestra players and voice-over actors whose collective agreements uh, concluded by genuine uh, unions affiliated to the ICTU had been deemed to be in breach of uh, um, competition legislation because of the following reasoning. Um, by, by being self-employed, the competition authorities saw the parties to these collective agreements as in effect undertakings as opposed to workers or employees. Uh, and that resulted in the collective agreement, instead of being according to the competition authorities and possibly prompted by, in fact, certainly prompted by the EU competition legislation in this area, uh, they were viewing these collective agreements as um, a fix, a price fixing cartel between undertakings as opposed to a collective agreements for the regulation of wages and terms and conditions between workers, including self-employed workers. And uh, uh, eventually um, a case was brought before uh, uh, the uh, Committee for Social Rights in Strasbourg. Uh, John Handy was representing uh, the unions and it was an unmitigated victory with the committee saying that under Article 6, 2 of the Charter and in line with ILO, uh, the ILO interpretation, CFA interpretation in particular, uh, uh, Convention 87 and 98, even the self-employed have a right to bargain collectively. In the EU, the story is a bit more complex. Um, we've ha we have, uh, I think, around uh, 40 EU labor law directives uh, uh, produced by the EU since the 1970s. And uh, all of them have uh, uh, a personal scope of application. And typically this personal scope of application has been framed as um, this directive applies to uh, workers with a contract or employment relationship as defined by member states, by member state legislation of collective agreements. So to begin with, the EU was not trying through these directives to come up with a single definition of worker of contract of employment. That changed um, almost 20 years ago uh, with a case called uh, Allenby, uh, where the Court of Justice said, we cannot carry on like this. Uh, uh, it doesn't make any sense. We need to give a unified definition of worker for these directives. It has to be a European definition. And they came up with a definition that they took from the area of free movement of workers, which is quite broad, but still essentially premised on the idea of subordination, control, contract of employment. Um, now, um, the, the jurisprudence of the court has evolved since the uh, uh, Allenby case. Um, it's quite broad, broader than the definition of uh, employee with a contract of employment, for instance, uh, in, uh, in U UK law. Um, which is admittedly quite narrow, but it's also broader than the definition of employing some member states. So some member states had to adjust uh, to even member states with a broad definition of uh, uh, employees or contracts of employment, such as Italy, had to catch up with EU law. But essentially still a very much a binary definition, you're either an employee, a worker, or a self-employed. Not very many 
cases dealing with platform work have uh, uh, arrived in uh, uh, Luxembourg, where the Court of Justice of the EU is based. One reference was made by the UK on its way out from the EU. Um, it was a difficult case. The Court of Justice handled it uh, with a certain lack of purpose, I think, and uh, didn't want to cause any problems and accepted the idea that the presence of a substitution clause in a contract with a platform can in effect disenfranchise workers from labor rights, including EU labor rights, um, because these workers become self-employed entrepreneurs. Um, but more recently, uh, the EU has come up with uh, these two proposals that I was uh, telling you about before. I think uh, I'll try and go through them as quickly as I can. I realize that uh, time is flying. I need 10 minutes, apologies for that. So the first one is the EU draft directive. Uh, it has some strengths and some weaknesses. I will mainly focus on questions of uh, uh, personal scope and platform worker definition. Um, the strengths are um, that, you know, the EU at least is trying to regulate platform work in a comprehensive way when no EU member states, government or parliament has attempted to do the same so far. So they're not trying to just regulate uh, um, platform work for uh, couriers uh, or for urban transport. Um, they are trying to regulate, at least uh, they're proposing to regulate both on location platform work. So kind of platform work that happens in a physical location, it can be street, it can be uh, office, but also online, uh, pure online forms of platform work, such as click work, such as, uh, you know, the kind of work that can happen through uh, digital labor platforms such as uh, Amazon Turk uh, uh, and uh, so on and so forth. So at least they have realized that the problem of the regulation of platform work goes well beyond the problem of the regulation of uh, food delivery people, um, Uber and other forms of urban transport and that there are other important dimensions, both quantitatively important in some EU member states and that are clearly on the rise, especially since the pandemic, that deserve to be regulated as a matter of policy and policy priority. Uh, the other strength of the directive is that it doesn't just focus on employment status, which has been the main focus of uh, judicial litigation in the past six or seven years at the national level, but it also tries to provide some rights in terms of algorithmic management, transparency, uh, some procedural facilitations uh, and uh, so it goes well beyond the our platform workers workers or self-employed question as core as that is. Uh, interestingly some of these uh, rights expressly apply not just to workers with a contract of employment, platform workers with a contract of employment, but they apply to all persons performing platform work whether or not they have an employment relationship. So uh, spoiler uh, uh, you know, this is an instrument where some of the rights go beyond employment. And there are some innovative provisions that we haven't seen in other instruments uh, produced by the EU before, nor do we see uh, very often at a national level, even though I, I think I mentioned that the Spanish Lay Rider 
introduces a legal presumption is actually a better legal presumption than the one containing this draft directive. I'll tell you in a minute why, when I deal with the weaknesses. The presumption in this platform work directive operates on the basis of a number of criteria or uh, indicators, indicia, uh, and uh, there's five of them. And in order to be presumed to be um, an employee, uh, uh, and therefore covered uh, by um, the, the directive, uh, you need to fulfill two out of these five criteria. And I will show you in one of the following slides that a lot of these criteria in reality are just iterations of the same uh, facet of a contract of employment or employment relationship, which is the facet of subordination of control. So chances are you either meet them all or you meet none. Um, but this is a very controversial at the moment uh, uh, provision in the draft directive and a lot of political efforts are being made to remove at least some of these criteria, if not all of them, and have a just looser uh, rebuttable legal presumption. Partly because of, I think, uh, this narrow legal presumption, the commission itself in the preparatory document that accompanies the draft directive says, uh, look, uh, we're going with this instrument to cover a small fraction uh, of all the platform workers that we have at the moment. They say that the best case scenario is that the directive rights will cover about 4 million of the 28 million of platform workers that are currently present in the EU. And they're also saying that this number of 28 is going to almost double to 45 um, by 2025. So steep rise in uh, the number of platform workers. and you know, in spite of some nice technicalities in the scope of application of the directive that I mentioned in a minute, and in spite of the fact that some of the rights seem to apply also to platforms that perform, platform persons that perform platform work without an employment relationship, the impact is going to be very limited, and that's a problem. Some other, uh, I think, uh, provisions that have attracted criticism uh, that don't deal with personal scope issues, I think, uh, one is uh, the list of prohibited users of data extracted by uh, the digital platforms and the algorithm in, uh, in the platform. Um, I think it's really the missions that have bothered us, that are bothering us a lot here. There's no serious attempt to engage with issue of working time, with jurisdictional conflict questions, what if the platform work uh, in the online platform economy is provided from a non-EU member state, which is increasingly the case. Um, and I think it doesn't say quite clearly something that happens in some member states. For instance, Luxembourg, Italy prohibits some forms of platform work. You don't find Uber in Luxembourg, nor do you find it in the streets of Rome or Athens. Okay, so, and uh, the fear is that here there will be a quid pro quo we give some rights to platform workers, but you will have to liberalize platform work across the EU member states. Let me show you some, the, what I think are the two most interesting provisions in the directive for the purpose of the conversation that we're having uh, today. The first one is uh, Article 1 of the draft directive and the definition of um, work at which the directive as a whole is supposed to apply. Um, so paragraph one of article one says that the 
objective and the purpose of the directive is to improve the working conditions of of person performing platform work. So it's, it's, it's an unqualified definition. Every person that performs platform work uh, is uh, covered by Article A1 of the directive that sets out the objective, the purpose. But then you have, I think this is the really, uh, you know, the, the slogan, but then if you look at the, the nitty gritty detail contained in Article 1.2, you see that the directive finesses this approach by saying some rights do indeed apply to every person that performs work even if they don't have a contract of employment or employment relationship. Okay. And this is the algorithmic management rights I was telling about before, and that's the third bullet point, the second part of Article 1.2. But the bulk of the rights, uh, including the legal presumption rights, uh, apply to, hmm, sure. So every person that performs platform work, and this is the novelty of this instrument, but then, and excuse me for the color scheme, but I'll explain in a moment. The directive speaks about uh, people that have an employment contract or employment relationship as defined by the local collective agreement of practice enforcing the member states. So the part in blue, it's the traditional formulation that we find in almost all the previous directives. So this is, let's say, the more uh, conservative part of the definition. But then you have two slightly more innovative parts of the definition, including, of course, uh, every person performing platform work, you have uh, one, uh, the part in yellow that says, with consideration to the case law of the Court of Justice, so it, it almost suggests to the Court of Justice, uh, you know, this is an area that you can expand, this is a part of the directive, you can expand, and the Court of Justice has been doing it even without being prompted to do so by an instrument in recent uh, years. Um, and then my favorite part that you don't find in any of the previous directives, uh, 40 something directives that we have is uh, a person who based on an assessment of facts may be deemed to have uh, an employment contract. So may be deemed to have that, we don't find in any other uh, directive. This both alludes, of course, to the fact that the uh, uh, Article 3 contains a presumption, and a presumption can deem people to have a contract of employment. But I bet you that the Court of Justice will see this as a further encouragement to claim ownership of the interpretation of Article 1-2, look at the objectives of the directive as a whole, and say, look, we're gonna deem more people to have an employment contract or employment relationship, okay? Um, it's a bit confusing, um, it's far from perfect, but it's new, it's new as far as EU labor law is concerned. And then you have an express recognition, uh, again, that certain rights containing the directive, not the legal presumption of employment, apply to every person um, that performs platform work, even if they don't have a contract of employment or employment relationship, okay? 
<clears throat> Let me show you the presumption. Okay, first of all, it says something that courts have been saying so far, but it was not always obvious that um, determining the existence of an employment relationship must be guided by facts and not by the fancy contractual footwork that uh, expensive lawyers perform when drafting contracts that tie workers to uh, platform employers. And then <clears throat> Article 4, which deals with the presumption itself, says that this presumption shall apply uh, when the digital labor platform controls the performance of work. Okay, control. So the, the key criterion here is that a platform controls the performance performance of one's work. Okay. Uh, and in order to exemplify what it's understood by control of the performance of one's work, uh, the article comes up with five criteria. Uh, and uh, if two of them are fulfilled, um, then the presumption applies. These criteria are that the uh, platform determines uh, the level of remuneration, that it requires um, certain rules in terms of uh, the worker's appearance uh, or the conduct uh, of the worker, uh, certain standards in that respect, that it supervises the performance of work or verifies uh, the quality of the results, including by algorithmic management means, that restricts the freedom to choose uh, your working hours or to refuse uh, tasks or to use subcontractors, you know, the reference to substitution clause, and that it effectively restricts the possibility to build a client base or to perform work for any third party. Now, my impression and increasingly the impression of uh, a number of uh, analysts and commentators is that by and large, there's a substantial overlap between the first four criteria. Certainly the first three are really a manifestation of the same uh, aspect of a subordinate employment relationship, control. And, and in fairness, that's what the uh, article uses as a key principle, like controlling the performance of work. Um, the second one has some elements of control. Sorry, the, so the fourth one has some element control, uh, but uh, it uh, also has an element of strict personality uh, using subcontractors. But then again, it's about control on the use of subcontractors. The fourth one uh, is perhaps, um, sorry, the fifth one, criterion E, is slightly different from uh, uh, um, the previous one in that it, it amounts to the presence of exclusivity clauses. Uh, uh, but again, it's about the control over the possibility to build a client base. We are now quite sure that this is not a presumption that applies uh, ex ante and, or a general presumption, partly because of this criteria, it will require uh, a judge to apply this criteria or a decision maker to be an administrator administrative body, but it cannot um, apply as a blanket presumption the way 
blanket presumptions exist in some legal systems. So France has blanket presumptions for, uh, for instance, journalists um, or models. Um, this is not one of those presumptions you will end up claiming uh, its application before a judge. Um, and also it's a rebuttable presumption, we knew that. Um, and uh, uh, employers can rebut the presumption. Um, and by and large, it will be rebutted on the basis of the very same criteria that are set out here. Though I told you that at the moment, the European Employment, uh, the European Economic and Social Committee, the Parliament, and of course, the European Trade Union Confederation in the building where I, I work, um, are trying to uh, resist the current formulation of the presumption. They would like all, or at least some, of these criteria removed and only for the first part to stay, the first paragraph to stay. Um, and perhaps also not focus so much on control of the performance, but focus on something more akin to an integration test. You say something super fast about uh, the draft guidelines on collective bargaining uh, of self-employed. These guidelines produced by DG Competition try to resolve the problem that I was mentioning to you before by reference to the Irish case. And that problem is partly determined by some decisions of the European Court of Justice that have said exactly the same. If you are a subordinate worker and you're covered by collective agreement, fine, this is completely exempt from EU competition law. But if you're self-employed, we'll consider you to be an undertaking and therefore the collective agreement to be a cartel in breach of Article 101 of the Treaty on the Functioning of the European Union that prohibits cartels. This instrument is uh, it's a soft law instrument. Uh, it's still a draft. It hasn't been approved by the Commission. But it has a very broad personal scope. That is to say, it tries to exclude in different ways uh, from uh, the reach of EU competition law collective agreements that have been concluded by or cover with the instruments, instrument refers as solo self-employed. And the definition of solo self-employed that uh, the description of the instrument gives is uh, people, persons that do not have a contract or employment relationship, so not employed, uh, and who rely primarily on their own personal labor. This is potentially very broad, except the devil is always in the detail. The uh, document then goes on to identify three particular types of collective agreements concluded by the solo self-employed that fall outside Article 101 uh, of the TFEU. Those that cover economically dependent solo self-employed that earn at least 50% of their income from one uh, client. Uh, those solo self-employed that work side by side with workers that have a contract of employment and perform exactly the same function in the enterprise or the sector. And uh, platform self-employed. This is possibly the broadest one, but it's limited by reference to 
a particular uh, form of work. So it doesn't quite cover all solo self-employed, this exemption, but it only covers self-employed that are either economically developed, uh, dependent or that do in effect the same work as employees with a contract of employment. And quite frankly, this could mostly be sham self-employed workers or platform workers who are labeled as self-employed. It has a second um, set of measures where some type of collective agreements concluded by solo self-employed are not quite declared as falling outside the scope of EU competition law, like completely exempt, but uh, the commission will not be chasing them, will not uh, uh, put them high up in the EC European Commission enforcement priorities. And I think the commission hopes that national competition authorities would do the same. It's not clear that this would be the outcome of this instrument. And these would be two categories of collective agreements concluded by solo self-employed. First, um, category uh, collective agreements concluded by solo self-employed that uh, have counterparties of a certain economic strength. And the document says expressly that these would be uh, uh, monopsonistic players, players that really have control a certain labor market. Uh, again, think um, I think number of uh, platform workers that uh, control. Are you able to talk slightly louder? Some people are struggling to hear you. Sorry. Yes, I can um, half Greek, half Italian. I can shout uh, my lungs out, of course. So um, it, it it says that uh, collective agreements concluded by solo self-employed with uh, businesses that have a dominant position in a certain labor market or are fairly big uh, enough, big enough to have a turnover of uh, 2 million euros per, per year or more than 10 staff, so big but not too big, uh, should not be uh, an enforcement priority for the European Commission. And then uh, this is really uh, the second category. Um, of non-enforcement priorities, almost a uh, um, sort of open category uh, for member states to declare any other collective agreement that they will not be pursuing under national legislation um, not to become an enforcement priority for the European and national competition authorities. Okay, just to wrap this up, um, in recent years, we had some great wins for workers in the courts, but not much in terms of uh, comprehensive legislative solutions. And I'm sure that uh, uh, John will have told you about uh, the meager uh, UK experience in that respect. Uh, the EU is actually the first European lawmaking institution. Uh, hello. Uh, the EU is, is, is certainly trying to give a comprehensive solution to the issue um, uh, applicable to platform work beyond uh, the, uh, you know, famous uh, sector of uh, uh, food delivery and urban transport. 
there are some uh, caveats in terms of its uh, uh, attempts, and I've illustrated them before. But I think overall, I don't see any big grand ideas uh, in terms of dealing with uh, some of the big, big questions arising from, um, I think, the uh, uh, re increasingly diminishing relevance of the concept of subordinate employment or uh, um, a contract of employment uh, and the challenges that arise, broadly speaking, both from a digital labor, digitally mediated labor, but also in the old sectors. I think there's a big question about informality, both in European countries and of course, in other regions of the world. No real answer in terms of recognizing care work as, as labor. Um, the impact of uh, automation and heteromation, I can say something about this, uh, but you know, this uh, full automation whereby you have technology that in effect exploits free labor that is disguised as uh, sometimes even an act of consumption uh, by a client or customer. And um, I think uh, Paul mentioned that I have a vested interest and I should declare it here um, in terms of the idea of personal work, personal labor, in the, in the time that I have to do still some research, I try to think about it, the future applications. There were some things that are really liked in the EU guidelines on competition law, but uh, then they started, uh, you know, cutting and slashing and uh, um, it became a very suboptimal document. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm happy to talk about this more, should there be any questions. Thank you, thank you for your attention. Apologies, it took me almost double the time that I had uh, thought about. Uh, thanks very much, Nicola, for, for that um, rich and um, very detailed presentation. Certainly, you combined the uh, overview of the, the more traditional debate, debates with um, some very new concepts towards the end. Solo workers, which certainly I wasn't aware of and which do offer uh, you know, obviously are relevant to our debate. So, so with that, I'm going to um, hand over to Helton Cheadle, who's going to make some comments. Uh, okay. <clears throat> Nicola, thanks very much for that. Um, I um, will keep to the very strict 10 minutes that Paul has um, uh, given me so that we can have um, a, a really full discussion. But um, uh, as, as you set it out, um, the, the, the kind of binary contractual form is um, um, in, in, in South Africa originates in Roman Dutch law, which goes back to Roman law. And so if we think about um, you know, these, these, these forms of work, um, obviously worked in Roman times and in Roman and, and in, um, in Holland in the, you know, um, um, 16th and 17th century, but um, somehow or another, um, you know, with the arrival of non-standard work, that binary form um, has uh, um, has been um, and there have been a, 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 a number of um, attempts in South African law to deal with it. Um, 
uh, largely drafted by Paul. Uh, the one is in, in, in the Labor Relations Act, there's a presumption of, um, of employment, and it lists a whole set of factors. And those factors really combine um, the control test, the organization test, dependency, personal work, um, um, and, and the like. So they, they re reflected very much in, in, the, in, in what, you've, what you've discussed. And the same applies to a code of good practice in, in the Labor Relations Act, which applies, by the way, to all employment law. And, and that is around who's an employee. And again, it's, it's, it's a much more, it's a fuller document, more explanatory. But again, um, it's, 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 it's struggling to, to, to really deal with disguised employment rather than the problem of platform work, self-employed and, and, and the like. So, you know, given, given that um, we, we have a range of labor laws, um, Labor Relations Act, which is largely collective, though it does include unfair dismissal and unfair, unfair labor practices. There's the Basic Conditions of Employment Act, there's Occupational Health and Safety Act, there's Unemployment Insurance Act, there's quite a Compensation for Occupational Injuries and Diseases Act. And obviously, when we, when we start looking across at, at um, where changes can be made, and I just want to, 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 to provoke a debate here, is if we look at the Labor Relations Act, clearly what we've got to look at is the issue of collective agreements on the part of um, solo employees or self-employed. And again, I think the definitions, both from um, 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 uh, uh, you know, Hendy's Act um, and, and the ones that you've showed us, seems to me we, we, we need to deal with that. And if we, if, if we amend the Labor Relations Act, then we, can, we don't have to worry about the Competition Act because our Competition Act excludes collective agreements. So as long as we bring the collective agreement provisions um, inside the Labor Relations Act, um, um, but of course that has a whole range of issues around, um, you know, the registration of trade unions, um, where the trade unions can, you know, um, organized employees, self-employed. So there, there are a couple of complicated issues there, but nevertheless, it seems to me um, that's one A. When we look at the Basic Conditions of Employment Act, we, we um, um, it's, it's, you know, it, the Minimum Wage Act is linked to um, the Basic Conditions of Employment Act. And the Minimum Wage Act um, has very open definition of worker. It's anyone who works for another. And, and because it's dealing with minimum wage, it really doesn't matter whether you're self-employed, whether you're an independent contractor or whatever, you're working for somebody else and you're getting um, a wage for it. But it's limited only to minimum wages, whereas clearly there are other rights that, that, that should um, and, and logically apply and hours of work would be one. And occupational health and safety, we don't have to make any changes because quite frankly, it applies to anyone who works in a workplace and the workplace would be a domestic um, environment, um, a factory, um, whatever. Unemployment insurance, it seems to me really um, that, that there's a lot of work that could be done in relation to the Unemployment Insurance Act um, and the same to do with compensation of Occupational Injuries and Diseases Act. Um, and the last point I wanted to make, it's just struck me when you spoke about the Constitutional Court's role in, 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 in relation to this. Our constitutional court has held that um, that soldiers. So the um, so our constitutional court is held under um, section twenty three of the constitution, which provides that every worker um, has a right to fair labour practices, and um, has held that although a soldier is not an employee, 
not somebody who's under a contract of employment, but um, is, um, is a worker. And, and on the basis of that, um, not only in relation to unfair labor practices, but also in relation to collective agreements, um, the Constitutional Court held that the Defence Act, the South African Defence Act here, had to be amended, or its regulations had to be amended to permit collective bargaining on behalf of um, trade unions that represent soldiers. Um, and that's, that, that's completely outside of the Labor Relations Act. And it seems to me, based on, on that case, it seems to me that there is, a, um, we, we have not just the, the possibility of constitutional litigation, but we have a very strong constitutional argument for, for um, expanding the range of protections for, um, for platform workers and self-employed and the like. I hope I've done it in 10 minutes, Paul. Uh, thanks very much, Halton. Um, and if I can um, ask people to indicate who wants to speak, and perhaps I'll just um, provoke some of the um, the union delegates. Um, it is a somewhat extraordinary thing I always find that um, although the Sandu case um, was in the late 90s and that established that um, persons who are not workers um, or not employees could, could had, had rights of collective bargaining. There's no single other case has been brought under that banner to extend rights or to challenge the constitutionality of, of any bit of labor legislation, which has a narrower scope. And I've, I must have raised this in at least 15 or 20 union seminars, and I still haven't provoked that case, but uh, perhaps some of you would like to speak to that. Are, are there any hands? I don't always notice them. Um, They just quickly react. Nicola, would you like uh, to respond to Hilton? Um, no, I, I, find, I find this uh, these comments uh, fascinating and uh, thought-provoking and spot-on. And um, uh, you know, as you were discussing some issues that are uh, very specific to the South African legal system and uh, labor market and uh, model of industrial relations, I was thinking that. Uh, you know, what in a way establishes a bridge between uh, your experience and some of the European experiences, in fact, all of them, is uh, um, that we share um, the coverage of Convention 87 and Convention 98. And again, I don't think it is a coincidence that this has become especially um, uh, the extent to which self-employed are or ought to be covered uh, by Convention 98 in particular, a certain extent Convention 87, but that's less controversial, uh, in the context of collective bargaining is becoming a very divisive issue in Geneva with uh, employers kicking a big uh, uh, fuss the way they hadn't done since uh, the right to strike. Um, uh, dispute. So um, these are indeed important questions uh, 
this side and that side of the uh, Mediterranean Sea that separates us. Paul, could I just ask a question? Um, Certainly, um, often. Um, I, in one of your slides, you, you, and I think it was dealing with Article 1.2 of the um, draft directive. Um, and it's, you, it speaks there that platform workers are entitled to minimum rights. Um, what rights are those? I mean, outside of the, the algorithmic rights. Thanks. It would be the rights contained in uh, in the directive, and the directive has uh, six chapters. Uh, the first one deals with um, uh, the definition itself, uh, the definition itself, uh, the definition of the directive. Uh, then uh, there is a chapter that deals with um, the legal presumption, um, and then. The chapter that you are referring to and that briefly mentioned uh, that covers algorithmic management rights and here there's uh, some uh, information rights, some prohibited users in respect of data. There's an interesting and fairly novel right of human monitoring and human review of algorithmic decisions, uh, an involvement of uh, uh, union organizations, although it says uh, workers uh, organizations in terms of information and consultation with the technologies are being introduced. But then there's also uh, uh, two other chapters that I didn't mention at all. Uh, one is a chapter that is called the transparency chapter, whereby there are some obligations, there would be some obligations if the directive is approved for um, uh, platform businesses, platform employers to communicate data to public authorities in terms of how uh, uh, their platforms operate, how they classify workers, and then remedies and enforcement rights that cover uh, uh, punitive disconnection of uh, workers from a certain platform, the suspension of their accounts, uh, termination of their accounts because they have exercised some of the rights contained in the directive. So, um, um, uh, you know, directives always purport to introduce minimum rights on which member states can improve. But I must say this one uh, really has made an effort to think outside the box, even outside of the box of first and second generation strategic litigation before national tribunals. The first generation being mainly about scope and the second generation, at least in Europe, being uh, mainly about suspension of accounts amounting to termination, which is something that has succeeded in some tribunals, not succeeded in other tribunals. Well, there's a broader set of rights, some of them completely new that, you know, academics have been talking about, perhaps you have written about in, uh, uh, in the past few years, and they're now in a directive. Thanks, Nicola. Darcy, I see your, your hand is raised. Sorry, I was muted. Um, thank you, and, and thank you, Nicola, for an extremely um, comprehensive overview of a complicated subject. 
Um, I actually um, um, agree with Halton and I would like to take up a point raised by him, namely um, collective rights, because it seems to me that the, the, the easier part of, of solving the problem is to find a, a, a comprehensive definition. I mean, I know there's lots of debates about it, but not to always um, write that into the law. The point is what happens after that? And this is the, the old problem by now of non-standard work, that workers may have on paper all the rights that, that they might want, but it means nothing in practice. In South Africa, the example of domestic workers who were given complete um, protection of, of all employment laws um, as of now, but in practice, they are in many ways in the same position as they were when they had no rights. And I think one big factor in that is the absence of effective collective rights because without the ability to organize and monitor things, workers are in a very poor position in the workplace if the employer or the platform or whoever chooses not to abide by the law. And so in that connection, I would just like to raise two questions concerning what are to me two interesting European countries in this connection, namely um, Italy and Spain, where in Italy, it seems that there have been extensive collective bargaining on behalf of workers like domestic workers and so on. Um, am I correct in thinking that Italy is quite advanced when it comes to the extent of collective coverage? And if so, why is that? And is there a distinction? Because also in Denmark and other countries, there are collective agreements covering platform workers who may or may not be employees. Um, is there a distinction between collective agreements on behalf of workers who are not themselves eligible to be employees or um, um, as opposed to those workers themselves entering into collective agreements and thereby potentially breaching competition law. And a similar question in relation to Spain, the, um, I forget what it's called now, the um, Law 20 of 2007, um, which provides for um, professional interest agreements on behalf of classified self-employed workers. And I'm just interested to, to, to understand a bit more about the um, framework in which that has been cast, given that this is long preceding any European relaxation of competition law. Um, um, it, it seems that, that the law itself stipulates that um, it denies moving collective bargaining to this area, distinguishes between collective bargaining and what they call um, an agreement that transcends the mere individual contract with limited personal effectiveness because it's limited to workers who sign the agreement and who expressly um, 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 accept its terms. So I'm just interested to know on what basis, you know, laws like that, collective agreements like that rather, um, how they fit into the framework of competition law and the still existing prohibition on price fixing. Thank you. Thanks, Darcy. Um, Nicola, would you like to respond to that? And then we'll take a question from Andre Creel. 
I, I will try. These are very important questions, uh, Darcy. And uh, I think um, if I may make three points. First of all, uh, the directive has a complete blind spot when it comes to collective bargaining. And I, I, I agree that collective bargaining uh, has to be part of uh, the, a comprehensive solution. So a directive that purports to give a comprehensive regulation for platform work doesn't talk about collective bargaining has a, a big uh, lacuna there. Um, the reason is partly that uh, um, the dossier on the relationship with collective bargaining and competition law had been claimed by DG competition. So it's partly to do with competence and this is a knowledge. But that's, I think that's not enough because we know from countries like Italy and Spain that not only collective bargaining uh, and only collective bargaining can provide a comprehensive solution to these uh, forms of labor, but also that it's very, very difficult to agree at what level, what is the optimal level for this collective bargaining to take place? You know, should it happen by identifying uh, couriers, riders as a distinct industry, or should it par be part of the hospitality sector, you know, um, which has already a collective agreement? So there are important questions there about, you know, jurisdictional questions. Who are the unions that are going to uh, sign these collective agreements? And it goes even beyond that, because as you rightly say, there are unions that can sign it, but there's unions and unions and there's workers associations that the directives speak about that may not necessarily be bona fide unions. We've had similar examples in, in Italy um, uh, where uh, what is in effect a neo-fascist union concluded uh, uh, a sweetheart deal with uh, the biggest uh, employer organization in the food delivery sector only for the Ministry of Labour to intervene a year and a half ago and quash that uh, agreement. And there are similar complications in a number of other uh, legal and industrial relations systems. Now, when it comes to competition authorities and how is it that they decide uh, to uh, interfere with some collective agreements signed by the self-employed or covering self-employed and all that, I don't have a clear answer. Not all e national competition authorities have taken an interest in this. So for instance, in Italy, the self-employed have concluded collective agreements for ages. In the UK, you know, not the most uh, socially progressive country, the competition on market authority never intervened with uh, the collective agreements signed by the NUJ. And most, most of the NUJ members are freelance journalists these days. So, when we, I remember a few years ago, I was interviewing uh, some uh, competition officials in national competition authorities who asked me, you know, why, how come, it's difficult, you don't want to ask them, why are you not seeing this as a problem when you yourself don't see it as a problem? And most of the times the answer that I was getting is that, look, we have so many other bigger problems, that this is not an enforcement priority for us. And this is partly, I think, what the Commission is trying to suggest in the second type of approach of the guidelines. This is not necessarily legal from a competition law point of view, but it's not our enforcement priority. There are some smaller states, I think, um, uh, no offense, the Netherlands, Ireland, uh, Norway, Denmark, that have taken, I think, you know, a greater interest in this kind of collective agreements, perhaps because they don't have 
the big monopolies that uh, Italy, the UK, France, and Germany have to deal with on a daily basis and try and break in all sorts of sectors and industries. So maybe that is a possible explanation, but I, I, I can't speak, uh, you know, there isn't a single, uh, I think, clear answer. Um, now, the late 2007 uh, and um, the fact, you know, who can bargain on behalf of the self-employed? This is uh, a big issue uh, and a big terrain of contestation between the unions, public authorities, including the commission and employers. And uh, clearly the unions want to retain a monopolistic position when it's down to signing collective agreements for self-employed workers even when they don't represent these workers in certain countries and in certain sectors, and the result could be, there's going to be no agreement. And clearly uh, public authorities, the commission, some members are happy to see us, you know, any kind of workers organization, not necessarily the definition that we have in mind, knowing the jurisprudence of the CFA should be able to sign collective agreements on behalf of the self-employed, even at the risk of introducing competition between different collective agreements. And uh, imagine what would happen if anyone was allowed uh, to sign a collective agreement on behalf of uh, click workers, which are very difficult to reach and unionize in the pure online platform economy. So I think that's quite controversial. ETUC has a policy of, you know, not accepting any formulation in any directive that gives the right to bargain collectively to workers' organizations, workers' representatives, you know, they just want to work trade unions to dispel their out loud and clearly. I don't know if uh, these at least engage with uh, the questions you've, you, you've asked. I don't know specifically how many collective agreements for the self-employed work concluded under the late 2007. I just uh, checked the number of collective agreements concluded for the platform uh, economy that includes some self-employed people in Spain. All right, thank, thanks very much for that, Nicola. Andre Krill. Um... Thank you, uh, Paul. Thank you, uh, uh, Prof. Professor Nicola. I think that's the name. I'm going to switch off my camera again, Paul, because I've got some uh, bandwidth problems. Okay. Uh, what <clears throat> is a bit of a strange concept, I think, uh, for us is um, the this issue of what you referred to earlier, solo self-employment. Self now, maybe just a wording difference, but certainly it's never come up in our engagements or in you know, any of the sort of uh, employment law concepts that we that we discuss and that we certainly know as trade unionists here in South Africa. So I wanted to want, wondered if you could um, firstly just give us some more practical examples of, of what would constitute such employment, but um, uh, what would uh, yeah what would constitute such employment? But more importantly, I find it strange that for what is referred to as the solo self-employed, there could be such a thing as collective bargaining. Um, because would it not just be simply equivalent to a single 
normal employment contract, which is not a which is different to a collective agreement. In you know, in our understanding, you know, which uh, I know it might it might be new things, but uh, collective agreements would, by definition, uh, imply negotiating for and on behalf of more than one person, which I don't know whether you know the self-employed would solo self-employed that you refer to fall in that kind of category. Or is it that in let's call it a trade union or an employees organization negotiate a, a collective agreement which covers broadly just the let's call it the job category of what is referred to as self-employed. But I think uh, the point I want to bring across is, to put it quite simply, I've never heard of such a concept until today. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Andre. Would you respond to that, Nicola? Yes, Andre. Thank you very much. I think you're. Uh, it's a very legitimate uh, question that I think uh, uh, partly gives me an opportunity to clarify the meaning of uh, solo self-employed in this uh, document that I was talking about. So to be clear, solo self-employed in essence means a self-employed person without employees. It does not mean a self-employed person that as a unit concludes a collective agreement with an employer or an employer organization. So it would still have to be a collective agreement that covers a number of solo self-employed, not just one solo self-employed, because otherwise, as you're roughly saying, that is an individual agreement. It's not a collective agreement. Um, the term solo self-employed in EU law comes, strangely enough, from uh, the European Statistics Authority, because at some point the European Statistics Authority started uh, counting the percentage of self-employed people in the European labor market. And then they broke down the category of self-employed persons into two subcategories, uh, the self-employed without employees and the self-employed with employees that in some countries would be small businesses. In some other countries would be just that, self-employed personal service companies uh, that use uh, other staff for particular tasks. It has to do more with company law. But the origin is from Eurostat. I think the first time that I bumped into this term, solo self-employed was when I was looking at European statistics of self-employment. And it means, in essence, a self-employed person that does not have employees. How you reconcile that with a contracts, that can be platform contracts or normal contracts uh, for services that uh, uh, allow for substitution clauses. It's another interesting question because of course, you can be a solo self-employed, but if your contract has a substitution clause, then some courts could deem you to be uh, self-employed that potentially could have employees. Um, so, um, but the short answer is solo self-employed means self-employed without employees, not a self-employed person that on its own concludes a collective agreement. And apologies if um, I wasn't clear in that in the first place. 
Um, could I just uh, ask you then to clarify, would, would um, these solo self-employed be members of associations and would those associations be solely for their group or would they also you know, represent conventional employees? What we know, Paul, is that uh, the answer to this question varies from country to country. So um, journalists would be solo self-employed, according to the definition that I presented earlier, and would be covered in the UK by the collective agreement of the NUJ that covers both freelance journalists and the newsreader of uh, BBC Breakfast, who is directly employed uh, as a journalist by uh, the British Broadcasting Corporation. Uh, in uh, the United Kingdom, you have uh, some bodies that are not unions, like the NUJ, uh, the Royal Society of Nurses, for instance, that uh, regulates the terms and conditions as if it were a union uh, for both uh, nurses that are employed by hospitals, but also agency nurses, freelance nurses. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, nobody would doubt that uh, the Royal Society of Nurses does a good job at representing its members. Some of its members may also be unionized with Unison. Uh, some may have exclusive affiliation to uh, what is a representative body, a bona fide representative body. That is, however, not uh, a union. It's, uh, the, I think, uh, reincarnation of, uh, you know, traditional professional guilds. Uh, from the Dutch times, <laughs> in the case of South Africa. And then you have some much more dubious associations that try to organize or pretend to represent click workers that uh, have no history. Uh, you know, these are also new jobs um, and that are presumably uh, probably under the influence of uh, big platforms such as Amazon Turk and so on and so forth. So re this really varies from country to country, from times from sector to sector. Thanks. Um, Halton, you wanted to, your hand is raised. I, I just thought to, to, to um, respond to Andre. Um, I, I think, I think the, the, the concept of solo um, self-employment is really to, um, uh, to identify those those workers um, like and I think we've, we've, you know journalists for example some are employed by the the newspaper some are 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 are, are, are um, and freelance and self-employed so um, a journalist union would then and I think that one of those one of the definitions here is to work out you know what what you would include is side by side so there there are people who are, are employees, but then there are also independent, well, sorry, let's say solo self-employed that work um, under a different contractual arrangement. And it seems to me that, you know, a collective agreement should apply to, to both. And the, the kinds of people we're talking about are, are journalists, actors, um, musicians. Um, and, and I think it, 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 it partly answers platform work in the sense that you know, the, uh, the Uber drivers. So there's the question of whether they really are employees or not. But if, if, you, if you made them um, um, so, solo self-employed um, and, and had a provision that deals with um, camouflaged or disguised substitution type clauses, um, it seems to me that um, 
um, you know, if they formed um, a trade union um, and entered into a collective agreement, uh, we, 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 we're trying to expand here, I think, um, to give a range of workers that today do not have um, collective rights because of, of a binary old type system of, of seeing a difference between an employee and an independent contractor. And, 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 and really what we're not regulating is as employers then, uh, you know, find different ways to get around and avoid um, um, labor regulation. And I think, I mean, I think the, the, um, Andre was asking what were practical examples? And I think it's around journalists, actors, Uber drivers, um, you know, um, um, and, in, and particularly in domestic work, you see, because increasingly now they're doing it um, via platforms, as, as um, Darcy will well, well know. It seems to me that it's much easier then to in negotiate a collective agreement with an employer association um, or, 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 a, or a, 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 um, a domestic employer platform, um, um, provided that you can, you, you can expand the definition of employee um, wider than and the, the current way in which um, we, we reflect Roman Dutch law. Uh, thanks, Nelson. Any, um, uh, another hand from Darcy? Um, and maybe if I could just, um, Andre had raised that question and maybe it would seem to me that, for instance, um, wouldn't, you know, many of the peace workers in the clothing industry who work at home often, um, you know, and are not regarded as employees by the, the people who supply them with work, they might fall into that. Um, all right, thanks very much. Uh, Darcy, I see you've raised your hand again. Um, yes, also responding to, to Andre's interesting point and also trying to reconcile many, many more terminology than anything else. You know, the terms Nicola use compared to the terms that we are used to. Um, I think that the rationale for, for um, exempting this solo self-employed from competition law is almost precisely the same as that that, that in 1875 in the UK um, exempted workers, well, they were then called workmen, I think, but um, employees from um, competition law of, of that time and allowed them to sign collective agreements, namely, um, well, we would say today, because the individual worker does not have bargaining power to achieve any kind of contract in a meaningful sense, they need to be able to um, organize collectively and, and then they will have some bargaining power. And much the same applies to the so-called you know, solo self-employed. Those again are workers who have no employer, but they also have no bargaining power as individuals. And consequently, it does not violate the purpose of competition law to allow them to organize. But in terms of, in terms of terminology, perhaps others can, can, can correct me on this, but I would say that um, we would use the term independent contractor for, um, for, for that legal category, but we're not talking about a particular kind of independent contractor, namely those who are not conducting a business of their own and are simply individuals with nothing but their labor power to sell. That's right. exactly that, uh, Darcy. And uh, I think this is also something that you would have seen reflected in John Hendy's uh, worker, worker status bill. Um, 
Okay, Abida, do you want to come into the debate? Um, hello. Thank um, you. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Yeah, I, I just needed a clarity also. Would agency work in our content also fall under this? where people are contract workers, they go via an agency and then they would sign a contract and then would be placed in a different company. But then at the end of the day, that company then say, no, but we're not actually um, liable for you. You are part of an agency. Would that also fall under this bracket? Um, so, I, I think uh, the answer, um, broadly speaking, is, is yes, uh, an agency worker uh, would be deemed to be uh, a person that provides uh, their labour uh, in a mainly personal capacity, which is the definition of uh, a solo self-employed worker. An agency worker may not, however, necessarily be self-employed, it could be self-employed if neither the agency nor the client are uh, her or his employer. In Europe, we have a European directive of 2008 that tries to facilitate an understanding of agency work as work provided by people who are employed by the agency, who have a contract of employment with the agency. Uh, and that was the traditional preference of the big employ private employment agencies in Europe that saw agency workers as <laughs> their assets. Uh, you know, they didn't act as digital platforms and they wanted to keep them close to them uh, for fear of them being poached. Um, things have slightly different with uh, uh, efficiency matching potential that algorithms provide to digital intermediaries. And I think they don't really care what the status is. They can just use armies of uh, on-demand workers as a see fit optimized electronically as opposed to somebody in a, in a back office with cards. Um, but yes, the answer, short answer to your question is yes. Mind you, these guidelines are exclusively for the purposes of collective bargaining. Thanks. Um, anybody else um, want to join in the debate? We do have a few minutes left. All right. It seems like um, uh, there, there are no other hands. Um, so just to it remains just to thank you, Nicola, for a very rich presentation, and it clearly has has stimulated debate. Um, Many of our participants are players in forums like NEDLAC where they are um, going to be um, uh, debates on these topics. Uh, so thanks for being with us and for, for having given us a very clear and detailed presentation. Thanks very much. Thank you very much, you uh, very much uh, Paul. Uh, many thanks also to uh, Halton and, and, and Darcy and all of you for your comments, for your attention. and. Uh, uh, should you need any materials, 
from the materials that are spoken about or any other materials uh, uh, of interest to you, please feel free uh, to ask both in my capacity as uh, uh, director of uh, research at the ETI. We produce all sorts of materials on, uh, on this subject and uh, other uh, uh, subjects connected. Uh, uh, to it, and as somebody who still has access to the digital library uh, of, of UC, I'm very, very happy to share materials. Um, thank you, and good luck with uh, yeah. your own debates on the topic. Thank Thanks very much. All right, evening, everybody. Thanks. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.